This is the award-winning show, The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate us on iTunes. Is it true that you can leap over a chair from a standing position? It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The Big Electron. The Big Electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. Hello, welcome to the Big Electron on KCOU 88.1 FM Columbia. Thank you for joining us on this chilly Sunday. Um, <laughs> I'm Jackie. <laughs> and I'm Anahita. And uh, we have a really great show for you today. Um, I'm uh, excited because we have a great guest with us. Um, here in the studio, we have uh, Dr. Elizabeth King, who goes by Libby. I do go by Libby. Um, who's an assistant professor in biological sciences here at the University of Missouri. Welcome. Thanks. So um, we like to always start the show with the same question, which is, how did you get into science? Yeah, so I would say just like going way back um, when I was a kid, I was always, you know, like very outdoorsy. My family was camping a lot. I was always very like interested in nature and the natural world and trying to, you know, just... I loved animal shows and, you know, mm -hmm. nature type shows like the David Attenborough stuff and watching that kind of, that kind of thing. And so I've always sort of had an interest in biology, I would say, and, and ecology. Um, and so then when I, when I went to college, I knew I wanted to be a science major. I definitely, I wasn't declared biology right away. I sort of played around. I thought about being a chemistry major actually for a while. Um, and I really loved my organic chemistry classes. Um, That's kind of a rare one here. <laughs> yeah. Organic yeah. chemistry is not really the favorite. I know it's true, but I liked it. Um, but I ended up, you know, getting more into biology and, and being a bio major and, and doing a lot of research actually when I was an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to a really small school. <laughs> um, and so I got to do, you know, uh, you know, like real research, sort of very independent research pro projects over the summers and things like that, um, doing like field, field plant biology, I guess I would describe it as. Um, and I really loved that. And I mm -hmm. really sort of looked up to the, the professors that I was working with. And so then I ended up in graduate school and onward, I guess. So. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So do you think that, uh, that if you didn't go to such a small school, maybe you wouldn't have been able to have this experience or was it just always in your blood? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say uh, what an experience that I didn't have would be like. That's a fair point. I mean, point. it's true that, I, you know, I, I, I think it would have been um, more difficult to get into research. And if I didn't like... Like, I think the students that I have in my lab now, being at sort of a bigger research university, like they really have to sort of have the initiative to kind of pursue a research opportunity. And since, you know, a lot of my biology classes were like six and eight students, um, it was just sort of much, 
it was, it was almost expected that students would do research. And mm -hmm. so um, it was less on me to kind of make that, that happen. It's hard for me to say if I would have or not <laughs> at a bigger school. Yeah. That, I have no that, idea. I know that is a tough question, <laughs> but I, I kind of think it's interesting to like folk to draw uh, attention to how many different paths there are to science and especially yeah. advanced research. No, I think that's definitely true. And I think, you know, um, I definitely think I probably could have taken lots of different paths and still sort of had a satisfying, you know, career. <laughs> um, but uh, so it's not like I think like view this as my sort of one true path. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, maybe I would have gone down one of those other roads or gone to, into a sort of different area of biology or gone into a different science um, or even something totally different. Um, but, yeah. All right. Well, on that note, what is your um, particular brand of biology? What is your specific field? Yeah. So um, I am an evolutionary geneticist, I would say. So, um, you know, we are basically interested in trying to understand why traits like how long organisms live and how much they reproduce, why traits like that vary in, mm -hmm. in the natural world. That's kind of the really big picture kind of question. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective, those are, those are things that, you know, evolution is always going to want to favor survival and reproduction, right? It should favor the individuals that survive and reproduce the best, right? Yeah. And so, you know, you can imagine that, you should always be favoring. So the sort of naive perspective is that you should always be favoring living long or surviving, right? And and reproducing a lot. But, mm -hmm. it, you know, it turns out that those traits, um, you know, cost energy, right? And so we're really interested in trying to understand, um, you know, how organisms figure out what to do with the sort of limited energy that they are able to get. So they're, you know, all organisms have to basically acquire food in some way, right? So plants yeah. get their energy from, from the sunlight, right? Um, animals are eating things, right? Mm -hmm. Plants are animals in their environment. And then they ha sort of have this kind of set energy pool that they have to work with. And then they have to do all of the different things that, that they need to do with that pool of energy, right? Yes. And so one of those things is, you know, you can think of them sort of allocating some of that energy towards towards maintaining and repairing um, their tissues, right? That mm -hmm. might help them survive longer or allocating to immunity so that they don't get sick and die, right? Um, but they also have to allocate some of that energy towards their offspring and caring for their offspring and producing an offspring that's gonna be competitive in nature. Um, and you know, if they allocate more resources towards one of those functions or one of those structures than another, then they're gonna have less for, the, for everything else, right? And so we sort of try to study um, everything in that framework, trying to, to understand how that constrains the kinds of patterns that can evolve, what happens when uh, resources vary for an organism. Like if mm -hmm. you have very little food, how do you change how you're allocating your resources to the different functions that you need to do versus if you have a lot of food? And then we also kind of another sort of big thing that we try to understand is um, what the genetic basis of those traits are, what the genes are that are underlying those, those things when they do evolve. So I... Uh have heard this thing and I have no idea where I heard it from. So, you know, it's really, um, quali Reliable. quality information <laughs> that I'm putting out there, but I've heard that, um, you know, in the question of how did humans evolve to think so much uh -huh. that it was like the point that we started cooking our food was like a, probably a good time frame that, you know, we started thinking more and evolving into these higher thinking creatures. Yeah, I mean... Uh, Is that kind of what you're talking about? That the if you're not worried about digesting uncooked food, then you can start thinking different. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I don't... I'm, I'll just put up front that I'm not an anthropologist. So, I, you know, I don't know, like, the... 
uh, too much about uh, that sort of stuff. But sure. I do know that like the brain is is a pretty expensive organ to, mm -hmm. to maintain, right? Like it's very mm -hmm. energetically expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and we have, you know, really large brains for our body size. And um, certainly, you know, if we were released, I think some of those ideas are that if we're released from, you know, if we have a sort of more energy, are able to digest our food easier and get more, extract more energy from the food that we're eating. Um, and probably also, you know, you can think of this also with, Kind of advances, other advances that that human populations have made, where now we grow our own food. Like now, it's you know right. we basically have abundant food all the time. Um, that that might have allowed for the evolution of a larger brain, sure, mm -hmm. <laughs> released from some other kind of competing yeah. trait. Mm -hmm. So, what are the things that you do study? Like, what organisms mm -hmm. do you do you study? Because I mean, there's only so much you can use, or Yeah, what right. are what are the things that you that you begin to study those questions that that you asked? Yeah, so we uh, we use insect models. <clears throat> so here at Mizzou, um, since I've you know I've only been here for like three and a half years, but um, we use we've been using fruit flies uh, as a model system to try to understand these questions, um, and and really we're using them sort of as like. Yeah, as a model to try to understand these in a, in a more wider kind of array. So we can, you know, we can do experiments with fruit flies on a really short time scale. They can go from egg to adult in just a couple of weeks. Um, and so we can, we're even evolving fruit flies right now, which I can talk more about, but um, to try to see how these different kinds of patterns evolve and what genes change. And we also know like a lot about their genomes. Um, you know, they're, they're one of the organisms where we just have a ton of genetic tools mm -hmm. and and have a lot of sort of information about their genomes and so that's part of why we use them um, to try to understand these kinds of questions and then in the past before I worked on fruit flies I worked on another insect model system working on these um, wing dimorphic crickets so there are species of insects not just crickets that it's the same species and there are winged and unwinged morphs Um, and so the winged morphs have these big, long wings and huge flight muscles, and they can fly long distances and disperse to new habitat. And then the flightless morphs, they, they still have wings, but they're short and mm. they have no flight muscles. They can't fly at all. Um, and, but they have way higher reproduction. So there's this kind of so energetic trade-off between mm. flight ability allocating to these big muscles and flight fuels and things and reproduction in that, in that system. Hmm, that's really interesting. That's yeah. very interesting. So we've always heard that um, fruit flies are kind of the go-to when we're studying genetics. Uh -huh. Why is that? <laughs> and, and you mentioned that we have a lot of genetic yeah. information of that, but like, I just don't see how <laughs> you could get stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, some of it is, is historical, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, Back in the early 1900s, you know, Morgan and some other scientists started using fruit flies in experiments. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm sure that they also probably had some motivation that they're, you know, have a short generation time and things like that. But there's lots of species that fall into that category that they could have used also. Um, and, and, you know, those initial experiments have, you know, formed some of the basis for what we, how we understand, you know, mutation and recombination and, and things like that. And so... It, that sort of got started and then you build on that system. So once you, once you know a lot about a system, then you can answer questions that aren't reachable mm -hmm. in systems where you have not totally naive knowledge. And so some of it is that it's a sort of history thing. And then, in, you know, something else that's true of fruit flies is that they have a, uh, a very small genome. And so now when we're doing genomics and a lot mm -hmm. of sequencing, um, particularly when sequence, you know, when next generation sequencing first got started, it was very expensive. It's still expensive, but it's gotten a lot cheaper over time. Um, that was a huge advantage because you could sequence 
you know, a fruit fly genome for a very small fraction of the price that like a human genome or a mouse genome would cost mm -hmm. to sequence. Um, so that's another kind of reason that, that they were used. So when you, when you say small genome, what does that mean? <laughs> so they have, they literally have fewer base pairs. Mm -hmm. So they actually have the, around the same number of genes as we do. So that's not too different. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we have a lot of sort of uh, extra stuff in our genome um, whose function I'll say is unknown, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we used to think that it did absolutely nothing. And I think that's, that's shifting somewhat. Um, and so, you know, but those, when, when basically when after transcription takes place, right, then those hunks of DNA get cut out and the, what are called exons get sort of pasted together, the right? active yeah, Right, yeah, right. Um, and so in humans, there's a lot more of that sort of in-between stuff and in mice too and lots of other species. But in fruit flies, there's very little. And so um, they, their genome is, is just, you know, about 180 make me a million base pairs compared mm -hmm. to ours, which is like billion, over three, billion, 3 billion, something billion, like that. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. So basically the, the fruit fly is just active, 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 active genes. Whereas for us, it's like active, inactive or unknown, right. Unknown, unknown, active, unknown, unknown. And yep. So on and so mm -hmm. Cool. So, and also another thing is, um, how long does it take before a fruit fly can mature to reproduce? So it, it, the sort of um, typical time, I would say, is like like 10 to 12 days. So the shortest, fast. yeah, the shortest, I mean, it, nine days is hard to break, you know. So they've done, actually, a different ex uh, lab has done experiments where they try to select for shorter and shorter development time. Mm -hmm. And it's actually quite a little bit difficult to mm -hmm. get it to go shorter than about nine days or so. Um, and so, yeah, about two weeks, right? is the typical egg to adult. Which is great if you want to look at this selective evolution. Right, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. So we can do these experiments very, very quickly, mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, you could imagine that if you wanted to do an experiment where the generation time was like a year, mm -hmm. you'd have to, and you want to select for 20 generations, oh then you goodness. have to... You're for really 20 committing. Years. <laughs> right, yeah. So we have an experiment now that's going on where we're trying to um, select for... So we, basically, we're just putting the flies in different environments mm -hmm. that we think should provide a different selective environment. Um, so we have different resource conditions that we've put them on. So there's, there's one that's basically this fluctuating resource condition. So there's this idea that... Um, when resources fluctuate in the environment, you have sort of this boom and bust kind of patterning mm -hmm. that, that things like, so for example, that's, that's a hypothesized regime that people think might have to do with why the obesity epidemic is going on in, sure. in um, modern populations where we mm -hmm. evolved in this sort of boom and bust kind of environment. Now resources are abundant all the time. So it's no longer advantageous for, you know, basically, um, you know, storing excess resources when you have a lot of resources that should have been favored in that boom and bust kind of kind of selective regime. And the other thing that we think um, should be favored is basically when food resources are low, kind of putting resources towards surviving through those poor periods. Mm -hmm. So there is this pattern in lots of organisms where when you put them on low food, they like lower calorie diets, basically, they live a lot longer than if they're mm -hmm. on sort of normal food conditions. And so that suggests that one thing that could be going on is that they're sort of putting more resources towards survival under those conditions. Mm -hmm. So we have sort of a select regime that we think should mimic that. And we expect those kinds of patterns to evolve. 
And then we have another regime where we think the opposite pattern should evolve, Mm. um, where they get this uh, basically a low calorie food towards the end of their adult life, which should select for them to reproduce, you know, allocate towards reproduction when they're on low food. Hmm. And then we have like what we're calling sort of like a McDonald's diet selection treatment (laughs) (laughs) where they're on uh, like just like mango. It's high sugar. Yeah. So it's a super high sugar diet and they're just on that all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. We mix in some jelly beans in with the, you know, the yeast and stuff. Um, So, yeah. And so then we're just going to, we're going to see what happens. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. in, In that diet with the idea sort of being, we want to understand the diet that human populations are on now, which mm-hmm. is sort of, you can think of as this constant high resource diet mm-hmm. um, and, and how we might evolve in response to that. So once you put the fruit flies on this environment and then you let them grow and reproduce and stuff, then how do you analyze what happened? Like the, you mean gene- like the, the like genes that the, change the or genes, the phenotypes or both. everything? Okay. <laughs> the phenot- what, are, what are you looking for? Or what do you yeah. look for? Yeah. So, um, we are measuring, you know, things at sort of multiple levels mm-hmm. from, from the genome kind of up to what I would call like high level phenotypes. So things like how long does the fly live and how much does it reproduce? Right. Mm-hmm. Those are sort of our highest level. So lifespan is actually, um, very easy in concept to measure. You just mm-hmm. set up flies in vials. We, we typically put them on different food treatments because we're interested in the, res- the evolution of the response to the food environment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then we just, um, every day, you know, transfer them to new food and count how many individuals died. Right. And you can, you can measure lifespan that way, right. Oh, okay. For every fly in that vial. Hmm. Um, and then reproduction is sort of a similar kind of thing that it's very easy to talk about. And it's actually quite hard to do in practice. Mm-hmm. So those lifespan studies, they take quite a long time. Because um, even though the generation time is fast, the lifespan is also fairly short. But when you wait for every single fly to die, right, that that's, takes months, right, a couple months. Um, and then the, so for reproduction, we can just count how many eggs the females lay. On a, on a, we do that on a weekly basis. You could do it on a daily basis, um, but that's not really so feasible for us. Mm-hmm. So we do it on a weekly basis um, and we can... We can literally just separate um, the eggs from the, they lay eggs on the food surface. um, And then we can, we image them and we can automate sort of counting that way. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then some of the other stuff. Yeah. (laughs) So the, the. Pretty basic, but I bet it's really hard. (laughs) Yeah. It it takes, it's, it's labor intensive. I like the idea that there is some grad student that has to individually count. (laughs) (laughs) How many eggs? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, and then the the um, the genomic information is actually pretty straightforward as well. So, um, you know, we we have these populations of flies that are evolving, and we think mm-hmm. that you know allele frequencies are changing over time, right? So we can you can think of just uh, one location in the genome where you you have you know two alleles, right? Like a G and a T or something like that, right? Um, oh, and what, what are alleles? <laughs> so, yes. So, uh, like a, just a different type, right? Okay. So usually we think about, so, you know, there's four bases for DNA, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you could think of at a single, at a single base pair in your genome, you could even think of a different, uh, what we call a single nucleotide polymorphism, just a, a, mm-hmm. a change at that position. Right. And if there's a, a difference, um, that's associated. So for at a given gene, you could think of sort of the, the sequence of that gene. If you have mm-hmm. a different sequence, right, you have a different allele. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> so a different gene, but you, we don't call it gene, we call it allele. Yeah, right. Okay. So, so two allele, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And so we want to track sort of the frequency of, of different alleles that are in the population and how they're changing. Uh, okay. Um, particularly the ones that are related to the phenotypes that we're interested in that we think are evolving. So we would expect the most change at the, the, the genes or the alleles, right, where um, that have to, something to do with these phenotypes that we're seeing evolve in, in, you know, with these treatments. Mm. And so we can sequence, basically we can take a group of flies from these, these different lines that we've set up and we can just squish them up all together <laughs> and uh, extract their DNA all together. And then we can sequence them. And you, what happens when you, when you do next generation sequencing now is you get all of these reads. So you get a bunch of reads in the same place in the genome that sort of, you can imagine them sort of stacking up um, in, in one location in the genome. And then you can just essentially count how many alleles of one type versus the other type do I have mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to get the, the allele frequency at that position. And we can sequence if we wanted to like if we had unlimited money, <laughs> we could sequence every generation of this selection experiment for all mm-hmm. of the lines that we've set up to track how these things are changing over time. I have so many questions about <laughs> bugs. <laughs> so I understand now why you use the fruit flies, but in your other experiment, you're talking about with the crickets. Uh-huh. Um, were they chosen just because of this one difference of super flight muscles versus not so super flight muscles. Kind of, yeah. So um, so one thing that's complicated about the fruit flies that's mm-hmm. simple in the cricket system is that when we're thinking about like, so, so the trade-off that we think about um, the sort of competition for resources set of traits that we think about for the fruit flies, we're mm-hmm. usually thinking about lifespan versus reproduction. But both of those are sort of continuously varying and kind of the variability that we see from individual to individual is sort of subtle, right? And so that can be um, a little bit harder to get at. But with the cricket system, it's this sort of very obvious, like very discrete polymorphism, so difference between those types, right? Right. Um, And so there's like, there's sort of a suite of dramatic changes that happen when you're a flight capable morph in this population than when you're a flightless morph. And so it can make it a little bit more straightforward to kind of get at how, how the sort of partitioning of energy is happening in those two morphs and, Mm -hmm. and which other traits like lipid levels and kind of physiological type level traits Mm -hmm. are also changing with, with those two morphs. Um, So that's part of kind of the motivation for using that system. Yeah. Okay. What do they eat? Crickets? Yeah. Crickets are fruit flies. So crickets. Well, both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would assume fruit. <laughs> well, but yeah. I think I might be wrong R- on that one. Rotting fruit, yes. Okay. But mostly actually like for the fruit fly, since we talked about that, I'll talk about that yeah. first. So for the for fruit flies, they, they yeah, so they, the larvae, you know, females will find like a rotting piece of fruit and they'll lay eggs on it. And then the larvae yeah, hatch out and they just sort of work their way through that rotting fruit and eat you know, whatever's in front of them, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, the adults, you know, they're essentially feeding on the same stuff, but actually mostly the sort of yeast and bacteria that are colonizing that rotting fruit. Um, but, the, you know, they eat everything all together, but that's, you know, kind of a major part of rotting fruit that people maybe don't think about too much mm-hmm. um, and sort of the major protein source for the for the adults. Um, and then the crickets are actually, they're, they're sort of general omnivores, so they you know, they're eating kind of plant material and probably scavenging like other dead insects and that kind of stuff. They're pretty generalist, Mm -hmm. uh, pretty not picky um, Mm -hmm. in their environment. So, yeah, Mm. but plant matter and stuff. Since we're talking about about food stuff, um, you briefly touched on it, but let's let's go back and explain and go a little bit deeper into this. Um, 
when you're trying to mimic the or doing the McDonald's diet, <laughs> how would you how would you mimic that uh, for the flies for the fruit? Yeah, fly? so for the flies, we actually give them a, just a very high sugar diet. So just a much higher, you know, when we make. So I sort of talked about what flies eat in the wild. When they're in the lab, we make. Um, like an agar-based medium. So it's kind of like making jello a little bit. So agar mm -hmm. just sort of solidifies it up. Um, and, and then it's the components that we use are, are a sugar um, and then yeast for the main protein source. And we sometimes add cornmeal um, depending on the, the experiment and the diet that we're using. But it's typically just those three ingredients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that lets us kind of control the proportions of where they're getting their calories really well. Um, and so that's what they eat in the lab. Mm -hmm. um, And, and we can vary that. And so we just add sort of like a ton more sugar um, to their diet when they're on this McDonald's diet. <laughs> oh, that's pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a really great controlled experiment that you can like, you know, handle every piece of it. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're really excited about sort of, yeah, trying to test, you know, kind of very concrete ideas about how variability in food should select for different patterns. One thing that is maybe more difficult, which would be great to get at, is like what's actually going on in the wild, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. one thing that's quite difficult to quantify is kind of how much vari variability there is in sort of how organisms are seeing resource availability in their natural environment. Like how do you kind of quantify how, what's going yeah. on the with that? The natural environment. Right? <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. um, for the cricket system or the, or the flies, it's a little bit challenging mm -hmm. um, to, to figure that out. But... Um, you know, future directions, very long-term, we can <laughs> dream about what we would do then. Yeah. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Um, so we will go on a short musical break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Big Electron on KCOU Columbia, 88.1 FM. All right, welcome back to The Big Electron. Thanks for listening. Anahita has questions. I do. I have questions about uh, insects. <laughs> I keep calling them bugs, but That's I should right. call them insects, right? It's okay. <laughs> well, real quick before we get to that, if you're listening to us on our podcast, thank you for listening. Please rate and review us highly if you in, <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> It helps a lot. <laughs> so um, with insects. Um, yes, I'm ready. Are you ever worried about an escape? Uh, well... <laughs> So we do get the occasional escapee. Oh, you can ask the lab next to us um, <laughs> about that. So fruit flies are tricky. Um, you know, they're, they're very small and they fly. Uh, we can knock them out. So whenever we do, like, sometimes we do, like, controlled crosses, like matings and mm -hmm. things like that, or when we have to collect individuals to sequence or for something else, we will knock them out with just, you can just put CO2 in their vial and they'll go to sleep and then oh, they'll okay. wake back up later. Um, but usually, like, day-to-day -day fruit fly maintenance, that would take forever. And so one thing that students in my lab learn how to do is how to transfer flies from one fly food vial to a new fly food vial without letting too many go, but when they, when they're learning, sometimes mm -hmm. some get out, uh, even later, you know, the occasional one will sort of slip through your, your vial. Right. Um, and so we do our best to not let any go, but some flies do escape. We have little traps all over the lab. Actually, I can sort of, <laughs> we, we have talented fruit fly trap makers in the lab as well to kind of, they get out, but we hope to get them back right away. Um, and, uh, So. so I guess you said vials, and I don't know why, but I just pictured a fruit fly like aquarium. 
<laughs> but that seems ridiculous now. So uh, are they in kind of like, do you have, how many fruit flies per uh-huh. vial do you usually have? Yeah. So we have them actually in, in both vials and in the selection experiment, when they're adults, mm-hmm. they go into these population boxes, which are not that different than little aquaria. Okay. Um, and in those, like in the boxes, um, and then their food is just like in a little, like a Petri dish. Mm-hmm. Um, and we give them a little water source. Uh, those, they, they can, there's over a thousand flies in there in each box easily. Wow. Um, yeah, you can like stick your hand in and you can feel them all land on you. It's a little creepy at first for students, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... <laughs> There's a reason why we're chemists. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as bad as there are mosquito biologists who oh. do the same thing. And sometimes to feed them, they just stick their arm in there. Mm-mm. Nope. I've nope. heard of that. No, thank you. I've heard of that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And then in the vials, they're just like little, like, um, I think they're like eight drams or some strange, you know, measurement that we have. But yeah. um, they're, they're fairly small. And there's usually, we can rear like, like 80 to 100 flies in there. That would be kind of maximum density, I would say. That is like if I had eighty to a hundred flies in my house, very I'd be very concerned. <laughs> very small. Do you ever have a graduate student or undergraduate or you know postdoc who gets too attached to the flies during <laughs> the process of? <laughs> uh, I yes. So I I would say I do have students who, you know. Uh, we have to process a lot of flies. So when we, when we get their DNA, they, they don't make it through that process, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I definitely have had students who sort of um, have expressed, um, you know, sadness upon mm-hmm. having to <laughs> grind up their little, like, their Babies. tube full of flies. <laughs> yeah. well, that's, that's fair. I think that, you know, mm-hmm. it's hard not to get attached sure. to your research. <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and I guess <laughs> my last silly insect question. Is are do you think that students are more attached to crickets than they are to fruit flies? Oh man, uh, <laughs> I I don't know that the there's a general rule for that. I would say I would okay. I would say that the crickets they're kind of cute when they're little, mm-hmm. but once they get bigger, uh, not so much. They're not so cute, and so I I never found that students were really very. Um, they're bigger right, than fruit flies and they jump, right? And so I actually had more trouble with um, students who were a little bit afraid of uh, the crickets than uh, nobody's ever really afraid of the fruit flies. Mm-hmm. They might be sort of not that excited about them, but yeah. they're so small and they, they yeah. it's not like they can do anything it, to you. Neither can the crickets, which I would tell students, but then when one jumps on your hand, they, they would sometimes freak out a little bit. Okay, I have one last ridiculous question. <laughs> I thought of another one. Do you ever see an insect like a fruit fly in the wild and you're just like, oh, I can capture it and take um, it back to the lab or would that? I, I have never actually tried to catch one, mostly because I know that that would be, it's hard to just free catch a fruit fly like that. Right. Um, but I did, I went on a trip to Costa Rica over Christmas mm-hmm. and I uh, took a picture of a fruit fly that I saw that had landed on my glass and sent it to my lab. <laughs> Real science right there. That's right. Um, Okay, since we're on on the ridiculous question, just one, and then we'll go back to to the real science. Um, So I know that when when labs work with mice, they they don't just, you know, go to the pet store and get the mice. Um, There's like actual suppliers where where you have them and then if you want to do some genetic modifications then that's a whole nother deal do you is is it the same with uh, absolutely what do you what do you get yeah so um 
There are, there's a couple of really large fly stock centers. So one is actually at the University of Indiana, the Bloomington mm. Stock Center. There's another huge one that's in Japan. Um, and, and I think there's a big one in San Diego at, at UCSD actually too. And so, yeah, they, they just maintain like, you know, hundreds of stocks of flies. Some of them already genetically modified. You can just order them up, right? Mm -hmm. Many of them. Uh, and yeah, you can, you can just like put in your fly order and then get your flies in the mail. Um, and we actually work with a collaborator. So we sort of, we work with this kind of special set of flies that's um, called the, the Drosophila synthetic population resource. And that's actually maintained by our collaborator at the University of Kansas. Mm -hmm. And um, so we're only three hours away here. And so when we have to go get flies, we just like usually pop over. We can mail them too, but if it's like too hot or too cold, then you're like, well, well just I don't want them over. to accidentally die. So I'll just yeah. drive over and go pick them up. So I do have one last question in that vein, which is, um, so for chemicals, we have to have, you know, you have to be a lab to buy certain chemicals. <laughs> yes. Uh, is that true for flies also? I think so. <laughs> I guess I'm not sure that I've ever thought about whether you can just go on their website and order flies. I do know that like, so the, the genetically modified ones, yes, I think yes. for sure, because those are now... You know, NIH has regulated what you can do with, with genetically modified flies and things and all organisms. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of like wild caught flies, so there are labs that are studying like, not, you know, naturally um, caught populations of flies and things. And, you know, it's actually quite easy to collect flies in the wild. You just like put out some bananas and then you go away for a while and then you come back later. And I've accidentally <laughs> done that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so uh, different people have done that. And like Carolina Biological Supply, they have a bunch of fruit flies that they, um, they, they you know, use for education that people hmm. can buy or like little kits and things for rearing fruit flies for like, um, you know, I'm sure elementary up to high school students and colleges and things. And definitely like, a uh, layperson could order from Carolina. Um, I don't know about the stock centers, actually. I think that might be regulated. All right. Well, so uh, back to your research a little <laughs> bit more. Um, so you mentioned that imaging is done to count the eggs of the fruit flies. Yeah. Um, what do you use to image? Yeah, so the eggs are, I mean, they're small, but they're not so small that we need like a super high powered microscope or anything. So we actually just have a camera that attaches to our microscope and mm -hmm. we can we can just image essentially a whole field of, of eggs, right? So, um, you know, all the eggs that have been separated from, from a vial. Um, and then we have actually written uh, like a custom... Um, program to basically analyze that image, right? So you can imagine sort of analyzing, like picking out the oval shape that's, and we, we do them on a dark background. And so the eggs are light colored on a dark background. And we have a little, a little program that we've written to hmm. basically pick out and count the eggs. And then we've done like hand counting and had it run through the program to sort of validate that we're actually getting the counts that we think we should be getting from the program. And so once we get the images, it's actually pretty fast then hmm. to, to do the counting and most of the hand counting is to sort of validate that our more automated way is working pretty well. So, I gotcha. So when you switch over to the crickets, um, reproduction isn't um, as big of an issue, right? It's seeing that dis discrete difference of the flight wings or not? Or? Yeah, so crickets are slightly easier because they have this kind of interesting... Um, life history that, that not all organisms, like most insects, like even if you didn't let a female Drosophila mate, mm -hmm. she would still lay unfertilized eggs. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of insects are that oh. way. Um, 
And so... And Drosophila, it's the fruit fly. Yeah. Right. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Um, but the crickets, actually, the species that we studied, if you don't let them mate, they just kind of keep producing eggs, but they don't lay them, which means that their mm. ovaries kind of keep getting bigger and bigger because mm. um, they're sort of mature eggs that are waiting to be fertilized mm-hmm. um, once she mates. Um, and so that made it really easy to just basically, if we wanted to say, okay, how much... Um, is this cricket putting towards reproduction, we can just dissect her and weigh her organs, weigh her ovaries. And so that was a little simpler that way. Yeah, that is a lot easier. That makes a lot of sense too. Yeah. So if that cricket did mate, would it be multiple cricket babies? Oh yeah, Okay. many. And how, yeah, I was gonna say about how many is that? Um, uh, Many. (laughs) (laughs) So a single female can, yeah. She can over her, over her lifetime. She could lay easily over a hundred. Wow. Um, and Drosophila as well, hundreds. Which right. is great for your research because then you have this great population. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to get more flies or more crickets. Yes, mm-hmm. that's right. We can get as many as we need. Yeah. And that also gives you a great average too, right? Yeah. If, since you're it, sequencing yep. them all at once. Yes. Yeah. So that's right. We have to do things sort of on pretty big sample sizes, right? So mm-hmm. when we're trying to, you know, the traits that we're thinking about, the phenotypes that we're interested in, um, you know, things like life, how long the organism lives and, and reproduction. And we also measure things like lipid levels and kind of physiological level stuff that we think should go into those traits. Mm-hmm. Um you know, those, if you think about like, well, how many genes in the genome do I think are reasonably going to affect something like lifespan, right? It's, we expect there to be a lot, right? So we don't expect that we're going to find like, oh, we found this one gene that, that determines lifespan, right? That's, right? that's not very realistic for these kinds of traits. It's much more likely that there's many, many genes in the genome that are each having a fairly small effect. And so to pick up those effects, we need pretty big sample sizes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you mentioned uh, generations, like looking at the the generations yeah. of um, what sort of what's the average or in your research, um, what do you consider like enough generations to to see the progress of or the changes right. that you're looking for? Um, yeah, so that's going to depend a little bit on like how strongly we select and things like that, mm-hmm. right? So you could imagine that if we had done like. Um, like a selection experiment where we do the phenotyping like on something like body size and we only let the biggest 1% of flies reproduce or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. If we imposed really strong selection, then, you know, we could probably get uh, evolutionary change happen faster on a faster time scale, right? Mm-hmm. Fewer generations. Um, we, you know, we're doing uh, at least 25 generations of selection. We think that we'll probably see phenotypic change by then. Maybe not, you know, we'll keep selecting even beyond that point, right? And we might see further change um, mm-hmm. over time. But kind of some previous selection experiments have led us to believe that probably a lot of the evolutionary change will happen within the first, say, first 50 generations or so, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then things That's will... a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but I guess that would be like a year to two years. Right, yeah, it's not, it's not too long actually in fruit fly time. Um, right. So we're able to do that. Yeah, so like one of the most famous evolution experiments is uh, an experiment that was done in E. coli by mm-hmm. Rich Lenski's group. He's at the university, of, or he's at Michigan State. Um, and that experiment just passed like, I think that it, it passed 60,000 generations or something like that. I remember when 50,000 was passed and that was a little while ago. So I think they must be past 60,000 generations now where they've been under the same selective regime, right? So wow. it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. And it's pretty like, 
I guess whatever the opposite of disheartening is heartening (laughs) 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 that like they survive in this selective environment for that many generations. They do it great now, right? Like they've, they've adapted super well to this, this selective regime. Like they're in these constant conditions in the lab and they've sort of, you know, are, are now like perfectly adapted to this regime. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So are you going to beat that? Oh, with with flies? No. (laughs) Cause that will be too long. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so we're going to go on a quick uh, musical break, and then we'll be back with some more Insects Not Bucks. (laughs) Sounds good. All right, welcome back to The Big Electron here on KCU 88.1 FM. Thank you for listening. Go on, Ahita. Okay, so I have a question, Uh and... um, I I think you might need a little time to think about it, so I'm sorry to put you on the spot like this, but let's say all of the information we know about science disappears tomorrow. Uh (laughs) What is the one piece of information you would want humanity to know to start your research again? What is that like fundamental science thing that humanity needs to know? All knowledge is gone. All knowledge is gone. All science knowledge is gone. So we're good with math. Okay. Things uh, like that. You don't have to be like, well, Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> I, uh, I'm i going to go with the theory of evolution, natural selection, you know, Darwin. That's a great answer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I right mean, on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of necessary. I mean, you're studying evolutionary traits. It's true, yeah. Traits, so yeah. No, that, I'm going to go with that. We need the fundamental yeah. to get started on. Hmm? Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. And then um, we always love to ask our guests if there was a person of any age that was interested in following your footsteps or interested in science, uh, what advice would you have for them? Um, I would say just try to get some actual research experience. And that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that you have to do it like with a professor or somebody that is, you know, a scientist in, you know whatever, an official scientist, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, try to, if you're, if you're really young, you like try to get involved in science fairs and think about, you know, think about what questions in the natural world interest you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that, you know, just, just thinking in that framework is a really powerful thing to do. So one thing that I do with my undergraduate students on the first day of class actually is just sort of present different things to them. So like we watch a slow motion bat fly, right, where they've been, it's been filmed at high speed and you okay. can see its wings moving. And then I just ask them, so what questions do you have about this, right? Hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we I show them a picture of the grocery store aisle, right? And I say, what questions do you have about this, right? And we start talking about things like where, how we, you know, domesticated plants in order to become the food that we have in many yeah. cases, right? Like broccoli, kale, and and all of those species are all a single species and those kinds of questions. And so I think just sort of viewing the world with an inquisitive nature and, and asking questions and then um, trying to think about how you can answer those questions, um, you know, through through doing research is, and science is, is the way to go. That's great. That's a great answer. Yeah. Yeah. I well, love that you show videos of bats yeah. and the grocery store. Like that <laughs> understanding the process of science and like the process of asking questions and how that leads to experiments and and then how to build a good experiment. Those are all really fundamental aspects of science that often get overlooked. Yeah, I think sometimes we accidentally sort of skip over those steps. They we you know, as scientists I think we think about them all the time, but mm-hmm. we don't always remember to like be really upfront about it. Yeah. 
And share them with other people. Yes. <laughs> with the soon-to-be to scientists or scientists in training. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, in case you forgot, um, it was Dr. Elizabeth King, uh, Assistant Professor of Biological Sciences here at the University of Missouri. Thank you, Libby, for thanks being for here. Thanks for having me. And um, that's it for tonight. Uh, thanks for listening. Again, you were listening to The Big Electron on KCU Columbia. And if you're listening on the podcast, please rate us. It helps a lot. Thank and thanks you. for listening. Yep. Have a good night.